Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI-101, we very rapidly covered an overview of the time between the fall of the Western Roman Empire and the rise of Charlemagne, as well as some of his earlier exploits as King of the Franks. In this episode, we'll be talking about a fateful Christmas Eve that changed not only Charlemagne's life, but as we'll explore the relationship between Christianity and legitimate rule in Europe for the next several centuries. Let's begin. All right, I'm here on HI 101 with Phil Downey. Hello. And last time we were talking about mostly Charlemagne. Mostly. Well, half Charlemagne. Half Charlemagne. <laughs> and uh, we ran a little bit longer than I was hoping to, but I think this is going to be a little bit shorter, but a little bit more like freeform episode, which I'm kind of looking forward to. Should be fun. There's a lot less points that I need to hit to like explain Charlemagne's deal and a lot more things that are just like really interesting to chat about. Nice. So that should be fun. We're going to start off, though, like so many things do with Charlemagne, uh, with a new pope. So how many popes have we dealt with in Charlemagne's lifetime so far? In Charlemagne's lifetime? Oh, I don't know. During his reign, this would be the third, I believe. Yeah, third. Close enough. Yeah, it's the third. I am confident on that. That is the third. Uh, Pope Leo the third. (laughs) Um, Sorry. Not necessarily the third Leo of... Charlemagne's reign. Though, that was right? uh, <laughs> unplanned. Let's put it that way. Here's the thing about Pope Leo III. Here's the thing about the papacy in general, actually. At this point in time, it's not really the way that we think of the papacy now, which is entirely spiritual in its duties. There was a lot more political gain to be had from being pope at this point in time. And as such, there was a lot more politicking involved in becoming pope. So there were a lot of times where there were popes whose nephews became pope after them. Ah. And, you know, things like that. There were a lot of times where, where, you know, it was entirely within a family or, you know, it, it it got very political. And there's a lot of things that you probably wouldn't learn about in Sunday school about some of these popes. I don't know uh, if I ever learned anything in Sunday school about popes except the current pope, maybe, at the time. Yeah. Not not the pope we have now. Sure. from the past. <laughs> Here's our future pope. No, it, it's, it, it got a little bit messy sometimes. And there were a lot of people who believed for some reason that uh, Leo III had been somehow involved in some shady dealings with getting rid of Hadrian. And as such, they... Uh, 
They accosted him. They attacked him. So what what happens when a pope isn't a pope anymore? Are we talking like death or... Yeah, almost exclusively. There have been some times where popes have... Uh, what do you call it? They're, abdicated? Thank you. There have been times where the pope is, has abdicated. Uh, they're not that common. You, you you haven't listened to it yet, but we talked about it last episode on uh, with the, the Knights Templar. Okay. There was this one pope. It's, it's, a, it's a great story. I'll, I'll tell you the short version. They were deadlocked trying to elect a new pope. It took them over two years. And this nobody hermit basically wrote them and were like, guys, you need to hurry up and pick a new pope. And they were like, this guy sounds good for pope. <laughs> and they made him pope. What? And he was pope for about five months. He issued basically one major proclamation as pope, which is basically popes are allowed to stop being pope. And then he, <laughs> and then he abdicated. <laughs> This sounds like the worst pope ever, but also the best pope ever. I feel bad for him because he didn't want to be pope. He wanted to be like I mean, he just wanted a pope. Yeah, yeah, but I, you don't you don't become a hermit because you're interested in leading the entire church. Yeah, no kidding. It's a life of asceticism and quiet reflection, and and um, you know, using that simplicity to become closer to God, which is kind of the opposite of being pope. So. That's that pope. Don't worry about him. He's not. He's not relevant to the story. Okay. These people that attack Leo the Third, they decide that uh, if they gouge out his eyes and cut out his tongue, then he can't be pope anymore. Great. He can't do pope things. Uh, they didn't manage to do it. He fled the city, but he sent envoys to Charlemagne and basically said, "Yo, I could use some help. Things are getting bad in Rome." And your I just, father... I just imagine Charlemagne like reading this just cracks and he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and what's more, your father, Pevin the Short, guaranteed me a fiefdom of land around Rome for my own rule. And, I mean, we talked, we talked last time about directly after the fall of the Roman Empire how a lot of these territories were ruled by former governors and things like that. Over the centuries afterwards, a lot of the local level government had actually been moved over to clergy. So bishops and things like that would look at, look after things on a more local level. So, I mean, making the Pope or giving the Pope land around Rome was no different than giving any other bishop a county, right? Like, yeah. that's par for the course. And Charlemagne was like, yeah, absolutely. That's, we promised you that. I'm going to uphold that. Which is, is really consistent with Charlemagne's life overall. There's there's a really close relationship with the papacy. And as we're going to see shortly, it's going to pay off for him. So Charlemagne goes back to Rome to negotiate this whole situation, work things out, make sure that nobody else tries to cut out the Pope's tongue or gouge out his eyes. Come on, guys. Guys, come on. This guys, is not cool. Guys, like, guys. Leave, leave the Pope's tongue in his mouth. It's all right. Be cool? Just, guys, be cool. <laughs> just for one minute, can honestly. We not, can we just... One minute of cool, that's all I'm asking. <laughs> and so he's there, he's in Rome. It's the year 800. Christmas rolls around. So obviously, he's Charlemagne, and it's Christmas. He goes to St. Peter's Basilica to celebrate Mass on Christmas Day. Obviously. Where else would you celebrate Mass? Come on. It's pretty, pretty standard. So he's kneeling at the altar, praying. And Leo has a crown, and he puts a crown on his head, and he declares him... Uh, Emperor of the Resurrected Rome. Okay. Was this, like, unplanned? So, it depends on who you ask. Uh, It was almost certainly planned. Charlemagne claimed that he was surprised by it. In fact, Charlemagne was not a big fan of it at first. He claimed publicly that if 
he had known that that was going to happen, he wouldn't have gone to church that day, which is a big thing for a guy like wow. Charlemagne to say. No kidding. That being said, I mean, there was like a crown sitting on the altar. He's not dumb. Yeah, I was like, hmm, I wonder what that crown's for. Also, there was almost certainly talk about this beforehand. Yeah. I mean, this is a... When you rule that much of the former Western Roman Empire, uh, there's probably discussions here and yeah, there. Someone's going to be like, hey, uh, this is kind of looking like a like a bit of an empire here. Uh, mm-hmm. Chuck, you want to put this little thing on your head and maybe yeah. get a new title? I just kind of dropped this in here, and that's because it was kind of dropped on everybody. Yeah. So we should really talk about what exactly is going on here. Because it's a lot of different things happening at the exact same time, right? A really big piece of context that we need here is that at this exact moment in the Eastern Roman Empire, or the Byzantine Empire as we call it now, very much anachronistically because no one called it the Byzantine Empire until long after its fall. Yeah, just need some reason or some way to differentiate it after the fact. The, uh, the ruler was a woman, Empress Irene. Interesting. Was this uncommon in the Byzantine Empire? Uh, it wasn't unheard of. It wasn't common, I would say. The Pope did not recognize the legitimacy of a female ruler. Oh, good. Yeah, they were cool like that back then. <sighs> it's it's one of those things, and we talked last time about context and and, yeah. and, and cultural relativism, and it's yep, here it's it one comes. of those things. <laughs> it's one of those things where. You pick anybody before about 20 years ago, and they're probably going to have some stuff that you look at, and it's like, that's not cool. Yeah. it's It happens with everybody. Even the people that seem super cool, they'll all of a sudden haul off and say something that's like, whoa, that's that that does not fly anymore. Yeah, it's, it's something you just have to keep in mind. It's just things are different now, and yep. even these people who were sort of talking about in like a positive light like they probably did some stuff that nowadays we're not gonna like but it's also important to remember that just because there's something that does not fit with our current sensibilities doesn't necessarily negate anything good that they've done yeah you have to remember how much of it is a product of their time exactly it's just, um, it was a different everything was different which is the point of cultural relativism it's not to forgive every single thing that anyone has ever done yeah. it's to consider someone uh within the context of their culture exactly you have to keep in mind that things were like i kept saying keep saying it, it things were different then and they had to act in a different way yep and it doesn't mean it's cool it just means that it's not necessarily it, it, it just means that it's potentially depending on the, the circumstances forgivable depending on the context that it's taking place in so with that in mind, and keeping in mind that that's, that's kind of an understandable thing to do 1,200 years ago in an organization that still does not ordain female priests, yep. he did not consider Irene a valid ruler. And I mean, he, I mean, there's a lot of contact between the papacy and, and the, the empress or emperor, as it were, of, uh, of the Eastern Roman Empire at this point in time. Because, again, we're only 300 years out of the actual Western Roman Empire of what we, you know, having grown up in... Uh, in, in a North American context, which is an extended European context, consider the end of the Roman Empire, which it really isn't, but there it is, so you have it. Um, you know, the, the, the Pope is absolutely in contact with them. They're an important political ruler, and the Pope has contact with all the important political rulers. That's just how it works. Is uh, the Eastern Roman Empire, are they still religious? Are they Catholic? Are they Christian of some sort? Do they... They are 
Christian, there have been a number of things uh, at this point in time that, like, there, there's been a, a schism between the East and the West. Uh, they differ on a number of very kind of nitpicky spectra, but on things that are very important to them. Uh, the main one in the Eastern Roman Empire being iconoclasm, which is basically the fact that right in the Ten Commandments, it says, do not make graven images. Yeah. Right? And here's the Catholic Church putting up their stained glass, they're putting up their statues, they're putting tapestries, images all over the place. They're making all sorts of graven images. You want graven images? They've got them. And to sort of put this in context, you know, you have to remember that the the story of the, the church in the West is very different than in the East, in that the West is almost entirely taking on these old, you know, what were considered barbarian Germanic tribes who are most interested in Catholicism and Christianity when it's giving them victory in battle, which is not exactly how, you know, the founders of Christianity were expecting this religion to go. I mean, how do you how do you justify praying to Christ for victory when one of your main tenets is is pacifism. Well, they had to make some changes to accommodate all of these people, and it's sort of a catch-22 for them. Do you want as many followers as possible, or do you want as close to the original interpretation of Christianity as possible? In the West, they skewed towards number of followers because they saw it as a matter of saving as many souls as possible. It's, it's one of those things where I don't think there was necessarily a right decision on their part. Um, it's it's a hard call to make. Yeah, that's definitely a tricky situation. So what you have is not only a reimagining of what Christianity means, but you also have to understand that not all of your Christians are literate uh, Romans anymore. You have a lot of people... I mean, Charlemagne himself had difficulty reading for a lot of his life. He learned how to read, but he's a king, and he does not write. Yeah. A lot of these Germanic people... We're completely illiterate. And how do you teach the gospel to people who can't read? Well, there's two ways. Number one, you have the, the Bible translated into the vernacular, which was done at this point in time, but you still need a priest to read it to them, mm-hmm. and they're not always in, in huge supply. Or you draw the stories. That's what stained glass is for, right? It's to, it's to create basically a mnemonic device for the more important stories of Christianity. So in the mind of the the Roman Catholic Church, the use of icons is instructive. Yeah, it's evangelical at that point. It's yeah, exactly. It's 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 meant to help people understand their faith and to remember their faith and to uh, learn and grow. In the East, you're dealing with people who for the most part are highly literate. They're coming from a Greek tradition, and most of the people in the empire are fluent in Greek. I mean, and and we're we're generalizing massively here, but if you were to take percentages, the Eastern Roman Empire was far more literate than the fallen Western Roman Empire. So they could afford to get rid of icons. You know, they could they could afford to get rid of that and still effectively teach their faith. Yeah. And that's a big portion of the the disagreement between whether or not it was okay to have icons. And I mean, there are other really fiddly theological points. A big one is filioque, which is just deciding whether or not Jesus and the Holy Spirit are on the same level, level or whether Jesus is above the Holy Spirit. Right. It seems like it's 
not that important to us now. It was a, the kind of thing that people got excommunicated over. Wow. Mm-hmm. People took their faith very seriously, and I, 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 uh, I find it very interesting to what degree people uh, made it a part of their lives at that point in time. And on, on points like that, like it was highly nuanced stuff. It was very like high concept. It was not, you know, in, in comparison, the, the Crusades seem just absolutely ham-fisted, right? Yeah, definitely. It, it, was, it, was, it, it, was, it was highly involved and highly nuanced and highly intelligent discourse on faith, which is, which is really interesting stuff. Anyways, uh, I'm getting off topic because I can do that so easily on this stuff. <laughs> So you have a, we, we were talking about the, the Eastern Roman Empire, and uh, you had asked about, were they Christian? Well, yeah, they were kind of steering towards Orthodox, what we know as Orthodox Christianity now. Yes. The, the patriarch was, for a very long time, uh, housed in Constantinople, because it was an extension of uh, the Eastern version of the pontiff. Yeah. Right? It's the, the, the patriarch is essentially an Eastern pope. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's about as close to an analog as you're going to get. But that doesn't mean that the Pope didn't have any discourse with them whatsoever. And at that point in time, uh, reunification of the church was absolutely a goal for both sides, except yeah. each side saw reunification as the other side accepting their tenets. <laughs> of course. Which is how these things go. So while he had contact in general with the Eastern Roman Empire, as far as uh, Leo III was concerned, the throne was empty. Never mind the practicalities of the fact that somebody was ruling over that empire. Of course. To his mind, it was it was essentially empty. And when he put that crown on Charlemagne's head, he wasn't seeing this as a resurrection of the Western Roman Empire. It's resurrection of the Roman Empire, full stop. Well, the the the, con- the continuity that he was trying to demonstrate wasn't continuity from Romulus Augustulus, the last Western Roman emperor. The continuity was from Constantine VI, who was the guy right before Irene. Oh. Basically what he was saying was, there is no emperor right now. I might as well crown a new one. <laughs> okay. So... Cheeky. In his, well, in his mind, he's, he's, he's not creating two competing empires. There, there no. is no competition. Yeah, exactly. He is, he is making... He, he's installing Charlemagne as the Roman Emperor, just as there was one three years before when Constantine VI was on the, on the throne. Yeah. There's been a gap of three years for, in his mind. So politically, it's not as big a step as a lot of people make it out to be. Because, you know, a lot of times when people talk about this, it's, this, uh, it's from a very uh, Renaissance sort of view of the, the act, which is that the classical era was some sort of golden age that there was a, a dark age where nothing good happened and everything was terrible. <laughs> and then the Renaissance comes along and it, it resurrects the glory of the, the classical age, right? Like that's the, that's the, the centuries old view of history and the course of Western history. Yeah. And it's completely wrong. It's terrible. It's awful. But unfortunately, a lot of our understanding is still based on that framework because it's so entrenched in our, our, our cultural knowledge, um, our cultural understanding of history, and even a little bit in our education at this point. Yeah, maybe more than a little bit. Yeah. So, I, I mean, for Charlemagne, he wasn't really interested in going back to the, the Roman Empire because for them, the Western Roman Empire was this, this corrupt, bloated, weak, rotting thing that, that, that left and deserved to leave. It, it fell because it was weak and... and 
there wasn't a lot of good there that he was necessarily interested in associating himself with. Same with the pontiff. I mean, the the, the papacy had never done better than when the when the Roman Empire fell. They they were at the top of their game. They were administrating uh, the majority of Europe through the continuation of the uh, the the parish system. And, and through the uh, through the diocesan system, where they're you know they're above all of these bishops who are each administering their own little area of political influence. I mean, they they don't necessarily they're not necessarily looking back at the Roman Empire, going like, yes, that is what we want to be. Yeah, they're basically saying uh, what we've got right now is actually working out pretty well. Right. So why would Leo do this? Mm, we already talked about not acknowledging Irene. But what does it really gain him to not acknowledge Irene? I mean, there's always the chance that Irene is going to croak any day now and, uh, you know, her son is going to come along and now there's another emperor on the throne, right? Yeah. Well, number one, he's... There's there's this question of who can judge a pope, right? Like, if a pope does something wrong, who is he accountable to? And the flippant answer is God. Yeah, obviously. Um, But... The, like the reality of the situation, if the if the if the issue isn't heretical in nature, yeah. If a pope say goes to war unjustly with another state, who does he answer to? And there is an answer at this point. It's the Roman emperor, right? Because the the pontiff has always been uh, a Roman office, and yes. it was an- answerable to the emperor as long as there was an emperor, and there still is one over in Constantinople. So. Technically, the papacy is answerable to that crown, but it's a crown that is becoming increasingly far away from Roman Catholicism. Yeah. It is a crown that is currently uh, held by a woman. And, you know, it does, it, and it's so far away from where the papacy is, is, uh, is seated at this point in time that it doesn't really give him a lot of autonomy. And who better to put it on than a guy who continually comes to you to confirm his the legitimacy of his rule? Well, that's the thing. The... The Pope needs Charlemagne, and Charlemagne needs the Pope. Why not take that to the next level? Because as we as we discussed earlier, they see these German principalities as being the sons of, of Constantinople, yeah. right? Of, as being lesser. What the Pope's doing by making him emperor is saying, you know what? Politically speaking, hierarchically speaking, Charlemagne is just as good as any Eastern Roman emperor. Now, this splits the empire in two in a way that it hasn't been split since, you know, before the fall. And that's an issue because I don't think the Pope necessarily meant to set up two competing empires, but he did. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that Charlemagne was necessarily interested in being a competing empire to the Eastern Roman Empire, but he was. And that was a bit of an issue. It was one that they tried to work out, first through diplomacy. There was even some overtures with Irene proposing marriage to... Uh, Charlemagne. Wow. To try and reunite the two empires, which would have made the the largest political body that the world had seen in several centuries. It would have been just a massive thing if that had gone through. It didn't. It just didn't. There's no point in getting too hung up on that idea. Didn't work out. Just didn't work out. (laughs) He's more of a dog person. (laughs) She likes cats. He likes autumn. She likes spring. It's just, it's not meant to be. (laughs) <laughs> and I mean, a lot of those issues were, uh, were cultural. I mean, 
the uh, the religious issues, for example, for Charlemagne were just as much of an issue for him as they were for the Pope, if not even more. I mean, the Pope was at least a little bit willing to talk about this stuff. Charlemagne was very devout and very like firm in his devotion to his faith. He wasn't really willing to give any wiggle room, and you know that doesn't really help you work with uh, not, with a ruler that doesn't share your faith exactly. It's not great for negotiations. Mm-hmm. There's one more really big benefit to the Pope, which is that once the Pope has crowned someone emperor, he has just established that the Pope can crown someone emperor. <laughs> I was just going to say. Which is a tautology. How how does he get away with this when you said there's the patriarch mm-hmm. in, in the Eastern Roman Empire yeah. who theoretically should be doing this stuff, not him? Well, the, the office of pontiff is still held by the papacy. Right. And... What it's saying is that, I mean, I mean, this is really where you get this idea of ruling through divine right. And the Pope is saying that he's the one that is able to confer divine right upon a person. Because who would know that better than the Pope? Hopefully, from the Orthodox Christian point of view, the, the patriarch? Well, yeah, but I mean, the patriarch doesn't actually have any cultural political yeah, or course. religious sway in you know outside of the the byzantine empire it doesn't have the the continuity that the the pontiff has that's the other thing too yeah absolutely so you know he's just basically said that you know now the the pontiff or the the, the pope is the one that decides who is the emperor at least in the west at the very least and he's not necessarily saying that that line can't continue in the east uh, even though that's essentially, you know, that, that conflict ends up coming up. But even having done it once establishes precedent for the pontiff to be able to crown an emperor, mm-hmm. which is a big deal. So everyone's really benefiting from this arrangement quite a bit, except maybe Charlemagne, which is kind of interesting. Charlemagne continued to identify as king of the Franks, even after his coronation as emperor coinage was still minted with his face as king of the franks rather than necessarily emperor and his preferred moniker for the imperial side of his title was a much less direct and much more roundabout way of kind of saying he who rules as emperor of the you know the western roman empire kind of thing like and and not I'll, I'll add it to the notes. It was it, it's interesting, but it's like twenty words long. I can't remember it right now. <laughs> it was just a bit more like trying to play it down the whole emperor thing. Well, it's it's the difference between saying, and this is this is something that you see in in various places. Wording is really important. Maybe maybe functionally something isn't necessarily all that different, but sometimes the way that you go about describing a thing is as much uh, a part of uh, how people react to it as the thing itself. For example, when Napoleon was crowned emperor, he wasn't crowned emperor of France. He was crowned emperor of the French. Interesting. Which is to say that, you know, in his case, it's to say that the sovereignty of the nation doesn't doesn't lie within the um, the geographical body of France. It lies within the people yeah. of France, right? And and sometimes things like that really really matter. And you know, rather than saying Roman Emperor, he was very careful to say he that he was basically the emperor of the Romans and of yeah. It's it's again. I'll add it to the notes. Whatever it was, um, but it's, it's again very very roundabout and very very carefully worded. So yeah, he he didn't 
particularly identify that strongly as an emperor. For him, it wasn't even as important as his identity as king of the Franks. I mean, everything that Charlemagne did, all of these wars with the Saxons on the East Coast, uh, all of this um, political maneuvering, all of these military expansions were for the glory of the Franks, not for some sort of conceptual Western empire. And, you know, if the titles gave him more legitimacy when dealing with the Byzantine Empire, so be it. But that wasn't necessarily a thing that he chased as its own reward or as its own benefit. There were very, very few points in time where he actually invoked that title. One of them was actually, remember that Byzantium had uh, territory in the south of France. Well, you know, when this whole thing went down, there were military flare-ups on borders, including in the south of France. And, and he convinced some, uh, some counties in the south of France to join him basically by exerting that or, or by, uh, by you know, flexing those muscles. I was just going to say, flexing that muscle? Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a key portion of his identity for himself. So it's, it's kind of interesting to look at it in that light, where we think of Charlemagne so much as the, you know, the, the foundation of the Holy Roman Empire, as, as the, the, the first sort of resurrected emperor uh, after this, this centuries-long gap, when in reality, that's not how any of the people that were involved in this actually saw it. It's, it's very, very different from them and a lot more subtle too. And makes a little bit more sense when you kind of dive into it a little bit because otherwise it's just kind of like, and then one day the Pope decided to make some <laughs> German guy the Roman emperor. What? Yeah. And it makes very little sense in that. In that yeah, if you just bring it out out of nowhere, it mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense. But with the context, it's at least... Hey, context again. Hey, context again. Always context. Context is... So very important to understanding these things. But uh, so, yeah, that's I I mean, we just spent quite a bit of time talking about the circumstances around his coronation, which is kind of interesting. But I think it really needs to be talked about because that's the one thing that people really latch on to about Charlemagne. There's so many interesting things about Charlemagne, but that that coronation, because it seems so out of nowhere, I think is is really the reason that people latch on. It, It makes no sense unless you understand uh, where it's coming from and where it comes from is a very logical place it's not nearly as much of a of a leap as it seems at first blush and like yeah it has some long-term repercussions but you know either those weren't considered or they were considered and were decided that uh, they were actually beneficial to the players that were involved so except maybe charlemagne except maybe charlemagne who didn't necessarily lose yeah from it he Just didn't necessarily a little bit more complicated absolutely it did so I think that's probably a good place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the fallout of that appointment, some of the legacy that Charlemagne uh, left, as well as, you know, talk about his his later career, which, you know, things didn't just stop as soon as he was crowned emperor. But uh, we'll, we'll talk about that, that legacy uh, right after this break. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Phil Downey. Hello. Hey, Phil. What's up? Uh, Charlemagne is what's up. We've been talking about him. He's a pretty cool guy. We've been talking about, like, one day of his life <laughs> for the past, like, okay, so if, if each topic is in, like, four quarters, because, like, I usually do two parts and each part is in half. Yep. A full quarter of this discussion was about like one day in this guy's life and what it meant. So this one time at Christmas, Chuck went to church. It was the craziest. With this crown on his head. It was, was the like, craziest Christmas ever. Oh, dang. This is going to be so much work. 
So yeah, now he's been crowned Roman Emperor, which is a pretty big deal. And people at this point listening may be going, so is this the Holy Roman Empire now? And the answer is no, it's actually not. It's the root of the Holy Roman Empire, and we'll get around to that a little bit later. We'll we'll get into it a bit more. But I just thought I'd point that out. This isn't actually the Roman Empire, or Holy Roman Empire at this point. This is still very much a Frankish kingdom that is uniting a giant portion of Western Europe under a single ruler. The biggest portion of Europe probably since, well, probably, definitely, since the Roman Empire or the Western Roman Empire was in power. So, yeah, the, the consequences of that are, are definitely far-reaching. I think we should probably circle back around and talk a little bit more about Charlemagne, the, the person, rather than the, uh, the conceptual <laughs> fallout of the idea of, of him being emperor. So, I mean, Charlemagne was... There's so much interesting stuff to talk about with, with him personally that I think the, the, the sort of centuries-long repercussions of his reign kind of overshadow them a little bit, and it's worth taking a little bit of time to talk about them. Um, I talked a little bit last time about how interested he was in education for his kids, especially, yeah. but education in general. I mean, he was very he was very intent on the preservation of knowledge. That, that was very, very important to him. So, Which, which seems like a, a strange quality for somebody who's as well-known for busting heads as Charlemagne <laughs> is because that dude like and I mean you hear you hear stories about major military leaders going to battles and usually what ends up happening is they're sticking around in the back with like a bodyguard and Some like military they're, they're, strategists well and they're and they're watching things and they need to command from you know from a place where they can see what's going on and, and not then you get stabbed at the front lines yeah Charlemagne wasn't as worried about that he generally would ride into battle uh, with you know an elite core of bodyguards, but they weren't just there to keep him alive. They were also there to bust skulls. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and he was he was dishing it out quite well himself. That being said, the idea of of education was very important to him. He was big on preserving Roman works, like specifically books, mm-hmm. and a lot of what we know from antiquities comes from Charlemagne preserving these works. He, he, had, he, he would basically go around finding this stuff in, in old libraries, and he would bring them to the monks and have them copy them out. And he would have houses full of monks just copying books, constantly wow. copying them by hand. And I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest barriers to education and to literacy at this point in time is we're a number of centuries away from the printing press here. Yeah, I was just going to say. Probably books, not that close to newspapers yet. Books are prohibitively expensive because a dude has to sit there and write them out. I mean, the the cost of a Bible is is just insane because it's a fairly large book and you want accuracy there. So the whole thing just has to be completely copied by hand by a dude. Every single time. And that's the thing, like, you know, you'll hear about uh, translation inaccuracies that, that come out of stuff like that. That's because some dude is, again, sitting there and writing it out. Sometimes he thinks it would sound better one way th- or than another. Yep. Sometimes he changes the wording a little bit because he's going a little too fast and doesn't check it properly. Sometimes it's spelling error. Like, that, that happens. It's absolutely crazy. Have you ever tried to reasonable. scribe out some... Like, 
Yeah, transcription is a very difficult process. It's it's hard enough if you're typing. Just take a minute and just write out what we say for the next couple minutes and see how close you get if you listen back. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> it's not going to work out in your favor. No, it's not. It's it's a really difficult process, and, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, this is one portion where we do see that sort of, quote, dark age uh, sort of traditional story creep through where... In general, the church was more interested in having their monks transcribe things that pertain to religious life than necessarily some of the things that more holistically represent the Roman Empire. Yeah. Which makes some sense. They've got an agenda. Yeah, they're definitely pushing their own agenda here. Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily a despicable thing in this case. And it's often presented as such. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't make that argument. Like, they, I, they, I, they have to... I think it's a little unfair to, to say that it was a, a willfully malicious act to choose some works over the other. And it's not. It's really not. It takes a long time to do that stuff. It takes a lot of effort to do that stuff. Of course they're stuff. going to choose the stuff that's most relevant to them. Exactly. Like, it's not only are they literally picking stuff that's more relevant to them, but it's also, like, if you're going to spend the effort, you might as well get the maximum value out of it. Yeah, and it's not a willful act of suppression it's, it's a matter of there's only so much time in a day and only so many of our people so far have been sent to monasteries for the rest of their <laughs> lives so that they can describe <laughs> these things out. Now, that said, it's entirely possible that it was a willful act of suppression. In some cases, you just can't make the assumption, right? It's possible, but... It's, it's possible. I think that the balance of evidence would suggest, suggest that it, it was more an act of omission than it was, it was an act of, of act of suppression. Yeah. But that's that's important to, to note is that the things that they were choosing to write out generally tended to be somehow related to the church. And Charlemagne would have uh, supported that agenda through his you know his his own personal beliefs and, and his own personal relationship with the church and with the papacy. Mm-hmm. So I mean, if if the if the church is complicit in that, so is Charlemagne, absolutely. But the fact that he was a king that was taking the time to try and learn how to write even late in his life says a lot about his opinion of education and about uh, literacy. Most kings, as we talked about last time, are interested in things like hunting and feasts <laughs> and all that stuff and, and, and leading war parties and all of that. Like, it, it's not really a, a career path that lends itself to careful study. Yeah. And that's... One of the things that I find most interesting about Charlemagne personally, I mean, there are there have been a lot of kings that have gone to a lot of battles and won. And yeah, he was really good at fighting. Yeah. He was very good at fighting. I don't want to leave that out. But the fact that he was that good at fighting but still took the time. I mean, he was... If anyone in you know medieval European history could make the argument that they didn't need to go and see their tutor. It was probably Charlemagne. Yeah, like he probably already had a pretty good lead on any other competitors for being like the intelligent leader here. But he had a specialty. He had a specialty. He was a specialist. Uh, his specialty was conquering and ruling. <laughs> yeah, and he did it well. He didn't need to diversify. Yeah, but he did anyways. And I mean, I think that really says a lot about how important he thinks that. Uh, that literacy and education were, um, as well as, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times, the fact that he made sure that his children were well-educated. He wanted to make sure they had an even better start on life than he had had. And, I mean, it wasn't just about, you know, making sure that his kids had good tutors and things like that. All of these books that he was having copied out, 
he started libraries and not even the, the classical sense of libraries where people owned books for themselves, which is really what a library has been for the most part, right? But, you know, he had his own personal library. There was a, a royal library as well as the beginnings of what could be recognized as a public library. So libraries under the curation of a monastery that you could go and they would allow you to read books. Some of them would even allow the lending of books with massive collateral left behind. <laughs> because again, I, yeah, I can't it takes stress... so much effort to make one of these things. They're so the valuable. Is quite high. They're incredibly valuable because, I mean, just, the, yeah, the amount of labor that goes into it is really difficult to replicate. The fact that we live in an era where we can get our hands on as much printed material as we can is is, is miraculous. And, well, and for... Even, even the challenge we issued earlier to, to try and write out what we're saying as we're saying it for transcription. Mm-hmm. Imagine doing that on your keyboard. You're yeah. going to be okay. Imagine yeah, doing that pain, on a, but still. Imagine doing that with a pencil. Mm-hmm. It's going to get sloppy. Yep. Imagine trying to do that with like an immaculate manuscript. Yep. That's where like the time sink really, really starts to sink in. Well, it was an art. It was a matter of craftsmanship. Yeah. It wasn't just a matter of writing things out. I mean, yeah. so it's like, like have you seen slowly recreating these things. Have you seen most people's handwriting these days? <laughs> have you seen my handwriting these days? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, most people are not cut out for that. And I, I, it's different. It, it's different now. There's a lot of factors that are differentiating that the, the... It, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't even matter though right the fact is that it's going to take time to develop that skill and to execute it mm-hmm. yeah and, and there were actually uh shifts in the uh the writing style at this point in time that a lot of people get kind of hung up on the shifts in writing style they were already happening before uh charlemagne showed up they continued to happen after charlemagne died but absolutely his encouragement of literacy and and his because I mean, I keep saying things like in a very general sense, like encouragement of literacy or or commitment to education. I mean, he funded these things. Yeah. He paid for these people to do this stuff because it was important to him, and that's that's an important thing. Like, again, he could be having feasts and stuff with that money. Yeah, but instead he's spending it on education, which is mm-hmm. probably fairly unprecedented at the time. I I mean, a lot of people because compulsory education is a big thing in Europe. A lot of people point to Charlemagne as the person who started that, and it's That's not pretty cool. really true. It's more of a, <laughs> know, a, a matter of spirit rather than yeah, exactly um, rather than than reality. The spirit of the idea is what's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about yeah the the it, it's not just the education and literacy. There was also the cultural exchange. The fact that he was running up against uh, the Greeks in the east, the uh, the uh, the Moors in in Spain. Um, you have the Slavs on his eastern borders. As devoted and unbending as he is in his faith, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have anything to learn from these civilizations. He recognizes that there are benefits from cultural exchange with these with these civilizations. So he does not suppress contact uh, with them on an intellectual level, which is also kind of unusual for a guy like that especially someone who is well known for being devout in his religion yeah so devout actually that there was a i, I don't think i've actually mentioned this already or so far his his seat was in a, 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 a city called Aachen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still around it's not that major a city anymore but it's in northern germany he actually held a a church council 
in Aachen, like like people were holding in Rome or in Constantinople and things like that. Uh, specifically, it was confirming filioque. That was what we were talking about before with the order of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, yes. and who's more important or on this on the same level. Blah blah blah. Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> But he, he basically, he, he held this council, and not only did he have a bunch of very important people within the church come to weigh in on this issue, he actually had the Pope issue uh, a declaration on the, the findings of this council. So he was very committed to religious reform as well as uh, educational reform. So, I mean, there all, all of this stuff kind of comes together for this concept called the Carolingian Renaissance, which is basically this idea that we don't have to wait until the 1500s to see a resurgence of intellectualism, of, of literacy, of education uh, in Europe. The idea of the Dark Ages is, as we said already, is a really bad idea. It's, it's a bad way to talk about what's going on here because yeah. obviously there's a lot of stuff happening that's very important, that's very dynamic, and, and is kind of the opposite of you know a, a, a repressed period of several centuries where nothing happens that's not a fair way of looking at these people's lives in fact it's insulting we've clearly discussed more than nothing happening right now yeah and i think it's i think it's really unfair to the to the people at this uh, alive at this point in time to categorize their lives as being that abysmal when there's so much stuff happening i mean not only is there uh, not only is there charlemagne making all of this stuff happen but you know the things that are happening uh, in, in the uh, in the Byzantine Empire at this point in time are very dynamic. Anything happening in the Arab world at this point is just like popping off. Like this is dead in the middle of the golden age of the uh, uh, of the Islamic world, as as well as uh, in in uh, Scandinavia. I mean, we're just creeping up on Viking territory right now. They're they're coming. Yep. They're not that far out and. The, the um, economic, cultural, religious growth that comes out of the, the Viking era is, is also, again, really, really unfair to call it unco- inconsequential. And, and that's, that's something that I feel like historians have been fighting for a long time and maybe not that successfully. I feel like it's getting better, but man, there's so much stuff happening in this, day, in this period that you can't just say it's nothing. Anyways, Charlemagne was the kind of guy that didn't really ever stop. He continued to actively, not only actively rule, but actively fight late into his life. And it was really only the last few years of his life that he really slowed down. He started getting really bad fevers. He also, his, his legs started having issues. Like he wasn't as spry as he used to be kind of thing, nope. which is reasonable in your <laughs> 60s. I was going to say, the guy lived to be 72 and then... Or seventy-ish. I forget the exact time. Uh, yeah, about seventy-two. We're Se- unsure on it. Seventy-two in an era where the life expectancy was probably much shorter. Can- much shorter. L- lest we forget how his brother died. Uh, nosebleed. Real bad nosebleed. <laughs> Picking his nose with a sword. He he ended up dying of. Uh, it's, it's called pleurisy. It's it's just a lung infection. Okay. It's the kind of thing that people died of 1,200 years ago. Yep. Uh, it's the kind of thing that would probably be pretty serious if you were 72 today. Yep. I'm not sure if that exact disorder... It, it's, it's funny talking about causes of death, anything before about 50 years ago, because a lot of them have these weird old-timey names that usually 
mean that they just don't really know exactly what it was i mean they have an idea of what part of the body might have been affected and then they died yeah i mean that just means that he had like a really terrible cough that was probably raspy or watery before he died and then he died Mm -hmm. um it's just kind of how it goes with these ones originally it looks like Charlemagne wasn't actually even that interested in uh, passing on the title of emperor he seems to have viewed it and we talked uh before the break about how he wasn't even that into the title. Yeah. Really. It almost seems like he may have thought of it as kind of honorific in a way. Like, not really an actual title. Yeah. But kind of just a, well, thanks, Pope. Yes. Like, <laughs> that was really kind of you to do that. You're a real swell guy. <laughs> you want to go out for beers later? Uh, thank you for this. <laughs> he kind of changed his mind as he got older. Because here's the thing. He outlived a number of his sons. In fact, all of his legitimate sons but one. Wow. Louis the Pious. King of Aquitaine. mentioned him a few times. Yeah, King of Aquitaine. So he was his only remaining son. And a few months before he died, he crowned... He he seems to have changed his mind. He crowned Louis the Pious uh, co-emperor. Gave him half the kingdom. And made the condition that when Charlemagne died that the other half would also be given to Louis to try and keep everything kind of cohesive. Yeah. The accounts suggest that he died somewhat depressed at the idea of all of the things he had wanted to do and hadn't had a chance to do. Which is kind of sad when you think about a guy like Charlemagne and you think of how much... accomplished a lot. Yeah. And I think he, he saw... I mean, this is a guy who looked at... He looked to his grandfather, Charles Martel, even to his father, uh, Pepin, as as having done, you know, extraordinary things during their lives and didn't really see himself as stacking up. And, you know, as such, had a lot of ambitions for himself and for his people. Yeah. And he's obviously accomplished a lot throughout his life. It's not that he uh, did a bad job. There's a reason we call him Charles the Great. Yep. But yeah, that that I I don't know that one kind of got to me a little bit. Where it's kind of like, dude, you, you did fine. Like, don't, you you can feel confident. That might be the curse of ambition, though, right? It is absolutely to is to just never feel like you've done enough. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that drives a person exactly like, like Charlemagne. That's that's what that's what gets him out of bed in the morning. That's what makes him continue to push on into you know into Saxony, where he fought wars for thirty years before he managed to subjugate those people. Yeah, I mean. Who keeps going that long? That's Chuck. That's tenacious. <laughs> Quite the guy. That is absolutely tenacious, and and you know, and still feeling like that wasn't enough. Well, I mean, the number of territories that he managed to expand into the, and and not only that, but the 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 political structure that he managed to put in place. I mean, the whole idea of you know the 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 medieval system of having a king and then you know counties below that. You know, the the, the word count comes from. You know counties right like yeah. that's that's somebody that rules over a county so this this the system of nobility below him that are looking after smaller political bodies that are reporting to him yeah you know he he created that yeah based on systems that had been put into place long before i mean some of them even by clovis but he managed to expand that across the vast majority of of western europe and uh you know, with some innovations of his own that, that hadn't been there before. For example, he had uh, 
basically auditors that would go out to each county <laughs> once a year. And yeah. it would be it would be one political and it would be one religious. And the two of them would go out and they would check on the place and see how it was doing on both a secular and a religious level. He had auditors yep. to look after and make sure that things were running smoothly. And that, that, I mean, that was a thing that wasn't really done up until then. And that's the sort of thing that fosters corruption. That's the sort of thing that fosters rebellion. That's the sort of thing that keeps a, a kingdom from being cohesive. And, you know, between that and his, his contributions to the intellectual growth of, of Europe at this point in time, man, for, for someone like that to feel like he, had, he hadn't accomplished enough, is, it, it speaks to his ambition, absolutely. It's kind of a bummer. It's like when you hear stories about Beethoven being depressed and sad at the end of his life, that he couldn't hear music. and he, he I think is, my go-to is Van Gogh, yeah, usually. Life was terrible, and it's like, you, you did so much. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, once once he uh, once he died in in the year eight fourteen, the kingdom went to to his son Louis the Pious, and uh, he did okay. I mean, he he did fine, but when he died, he once again divided the kingdom. Mm. It was still that Germanic tendency towards giving it to a number of your sons, but this is significant because his division basically created. France and Germany as we know it, with a state in between them called uh, Burgundy, okay, as well as the Lowlands, which you know end up being the Lowlands are basically where Belgium is. Yep, um, and Burgundy basically ends up being split between France and Germany eventually. So basically, his grandchildren are the reason that Europe was divided the way it was. What, what, that that division after after Louis was West Francia, Central Francia, and East Francia. Mm-hmm. Um, and West Francia is just, it's France. That's where France comes from. So a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people point to Clovis as the founding of France. They, they draw a pretty direct line, and, and understandably so. But in a lot of ways, that, that division in 843 is the, is the point in time at which we can point to the state of France uh, finally existing. Yeah. So... I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Charlemagne is a lot more important to the traditional political divisions of France than he is necessarily to the Holy Roman Empire, especially because when we look at it a little bit, the Carolingian line doesn't last that much longer. It's only a few more generations after Charlemagne. Yeah. So really, the, the, the lasting legacy of Charlemagne is in the, um, the organization, unification, and then... Um, division of of europe over you know not only his own life but the lives of his children and grandchildren but also i think for me especially tying the european identity to not only uh, to each other so this idea of, of europeanism being uh, a unifying factor but also tying that to catholicism as strongly as he did because and I mean, a lot of that, again, has its roots in Clovis. But before that, there was no real... Well, that's not fair. Before that, there was the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire crumbled. There was no reason that Europe as a, a body politic had to be Christendom, right? And that's yeah. that's the name that Europe went by for a very long time, was Christendom. It was the group of countries in the world that were Christian. Mm-hmm. And again... A little bit unfair to the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantines, <laughs> but I, that's you know that's just sort of the reality of that world where they don't necessarily consider Orthodoxy on the same 
level as Roman Catholicism. Yeah. So, where does the Holy Roman Empire come into this? This is the question we've been waiting for. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, for a very long time, for a very long time, that's very unspecific of me, uh, between 928 and 962, there was no emperor. That died out. Uh, after the Carolingian dynasty ended, the title of emperor moved around a couple of times, constantly being bestowed by the Pope, mm-hmm. kind of continuing that tradition of being so the one... he did get away with it? There wasn't any major repercussion? He did get away with it, yeah. And I mean, the, the Byzantines didn't love it, but uh, after a few squabbles with Charlemagne specifically, mm-hmm. you know, they never came in force to retake all of Western Europe. So they kind of had to live with it. And, uh, I mean, in reality, when you look at the political strength of these leaders, there was no reason that Charlemagne couldn't be on equal footing with the, uh, the Byzantine emperor. He was as politically powerful as those people. He could bring as much power to the table as those people. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I honestly do think that the reinstation of the, the reinstitution, sorry, of the, uh, of the imperial crown in Western Europe was a fair move mm-hmm. it was maybe a gutsy one it, yep. it was bold that, that's for sure but yeah exactly but not unfair I, I think that there was enough real political power to back up that decision but not forever uh as i said in, in 928 the last uh the the last emperor for a while died and between 928 and 962 there was no uh emperor in 962, Otto I comes along, a very strong leader of that East Francian uh, territory, what mm-hmm. would become Germany. Yep. France has already become kind of its own thing. There is still a king of the Franks in France that would become the, the French monarchy. But in 962, when Otto I is crowned Roman emperor, emperor again, he basically makes that, that eastern chunk of the former Carolingian Empire into what he calls the Holy Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is based on both his legitimacy as as emperor, as bestowed by the Pope, as well as the, the newly uh, devoted Christian nature of this empire. Now, there's a lot of politics that are happening there. I mean, at the end of the Western Roman Empire, it was a Christian empire. The Eastern Roman Empire continued to be a, uh, a Christian empire for a very long time. Um, but it was this idea that the empire was founded in Christian values that made it the Holy Roman Empire. That's where they got that name. Gotcha. And the Holy Roman Empire continues for a very long time, essentially until the, the early 19th century. It's, it's a very constant um, political presence, but it's also a very loose political presence. I mean, the Holy Roman Emperor technically is elected. It's, it's a, a hereditary position, but you know, technically he's elected by a confederation of princes, and it's, it's all really loosey-goosey. There's a number of different political systems within the states of the Holy Roman Empire, and uh, it's extremely fragmented. I mean, it, oh man, I refer back to the German unification show way more often than I ever thought I would. <laughs> it becomes relevant in so many cases. But if you look at that show, the number of states, you know, we're, we're looking at several hundred German states yeah. when it disintegrated finally. 
and it's all in a very loose confederation. And this is partially, this is basically um, a consequence of that Germanic tendency to divide between all of your children, right? Yeah. Which ends up in kingdoms that are a couple of square miles. Like they're, they're these little tiny things that are basically of no consequence unless uh, allied with a number of other states. They're not individually all that consequential. Whereas the king of the Franks ends up being a unifying force where even though France doesn't really consolidate into a strongly centralized state for several centuries, there's at least that kernel for it to consolidate around eventually. Yeah. And all of these tiny little states that make up the, the, the provinces of France are going to kind of come back to that king of the Franks. And France is going to be this big monolith of a country while Germany doesn't unify until the 19th century. So all of that has its roots in this division at the end of um, uh, the Carolingian dynasty. So that's more or less Charlemagne. There's so many things that we could dive into that I figured I'd kind of open up to you. Um, I feel like we probably hit all the main points, but anything you wanted to touch on or ask questions about? I do have one question. Yeah. So after Charlemagne is made the emperor, yeah. does there continue to be a Byzantine emperor? Yeah, absolutely. But he is no longer the emperor of Rome. He would still consider himself Roman. The issue with continuity in the Roman Empire yeah. is how do you maintain uh, how do you maintain a, maintain a continuity over more than a millennium? Yeah, what is considered continuity? Because what you get in the Byzantine Empire is that uh, number one, it no longer holds Rome, which is the traditional uh, center of the Roman Empire. There's a reason it's called the Roman Empire. <laughs> um, it's no longer Catholic. It's no longer Latin in language or in culture. It's it's Greek. It it adopts Greek culture. Yeah. It no longer holds, you know, besides Rome, it no longer holds any of the traditionally Roman territories that it lost under the Western Roman Empire. So is that a continuity? It, there's an argument to be argument to be made both ways. Because I mean, the other side of that is that yeah, absolutely, there's a continuity. There's been a there's been an emperor in Constantinople ever since Constantine founded it as the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that that, you know, politically there's been a continuity there. Yeah. Even though the political structure has changed a lot, the culture of the of that political body has changed so much, the language has changed so much, there is still an unbroken line. So was there ever an effort to unify the two as like one single empire? And did that ever... Not really. Go anywhere at all? Not really, because I mean... Just too much cultural difference at that point? Yeah, I think that's a, a really big portion of it. There were sort of some token gestures towards it, mm -hmm. but by the time that Otto is forming the actual Holy Roman Empire in 962, he's got no interest in actually sharing that yeah. with the Byzantine Empire. In fact, a lot of what he's doing is in defiance of the Byzantine Empire at that point in time. And he's claiming that he is a continuation you know it's, it's actually a very defiant act to set up the holy roman empire because he's claiming that he's the true continuation of the of the roman empire yeah which the eastern roman empire has been claiming they are the whole time yeah and this is a this is a common theme in so many things in european history i, I mean this is something we talked about at length in the uh, the show about the founding of russia yeah is is this idea of somehow 
retaining legitimacy by establishing continuity from the Roman Empire, which speaks to the way that uh, Charlemagne was crowned in the first place, was yeah. not only a, a continuation through you know, moving the imperial title back to him from the East, as the, the Pope intended to do, but also through the authority that had resided in the papacy itself as an unbroken chain from when it was an office within the Roman Empire. So there's a lot of instances of trying to establish continuity, and that's been an obsession for the last 2,000 years, basically. It's, yeah. Or 1,500, I suppose, if, you, if you're pointing at the end of the empire. But yeah. yeah, I mean, Rome left such a strong impression on Western history that it's, in a lot of ways, the easiest way to establish yourself as a legitimate political power because they did all the hard work. So if you can say that we are a continuation of Rome in any capacity whatsoever, you have a reasonably good shot at some sort of legitimacy yeah, like in the eyes that history of power. Yeah, in the eyes of anyone who considers that power to be a, a legitimate source of power. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing and it's been tried by everybody. Everybody. Um most most recently, the, the, the Nazis. Yeah, I was just going to say, the most obvious one is the Third Reich, right? Yeah, because, I mean, the, the, the First Reich is uh, the, the 962 establishment of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah. And that, in and of itself, is founded as a continuation of the original the Roman original Empire. One, yeah. Right? So, so the Third and, and the Second Reich being uh, between... 1870 and, and 1918, right? Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the reign of uh, the German emperor, the, the Kaisers. Yep. Which didn't go so well. <laughs> There's an episode where you can learn about that. There is an episode where you can learn about that. It's a very good one. I, I, I refer to it all the time. It's actually probably my favorite one so far. And I've been on a few of these already. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the German one. It, it, it went really, really well. It was it's really a, good. It's a good story. Let's stop patting ourselves on the back now. <laughs> Hey, you know what? I'm not going to take credit for the fact that the German uh, nation has an incredibly interesting history. That yeah, absolutely that's does. not that's not my doing. <laughs> um, so, anyways, yeah, Charlemagne, I, I I think needs to be a little bit demythologized in general, as with so many things that we talk about on this show, right? Like it's it's I don't think it's always all that useful to take somebody and put them up on a pedestal and create stories around them. He didn't really do a great job of that, though. He still sounds like an amazing guy. But that's that's the thing. A lot of times this mythology does these people a disservice in that they don't need it. Yeah, he's actually (laughs) just really like this fairly admirable historical figure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, And did a lot to shape the course of European history. And... But, I mean, at the same time, was standing on the shoulders of giants and um, never forgot it himself. Yeah, I think that's the thing you can take away from this, is that he knew that what he was capable of doing was because of what the people that came before him did. Mm-hmm. And he was able to execute on that with those with that privilege. Yeah, absolutely. It was not a sure thing when he came to the throne that this was the course that... Um, Europe was going to take. He absolutely assured that, but you know he was he was working with some some very strong tools that he was that he was given through uh, through circumstance and through uh, through education and and a little bit of luck uh, about the <laughs> fact that he was able to use them so effectively. Yeah, 
but uh, yeah, an incredibly interesting person that doesn't need, uh, a, you know, 11th century epic poems about him to to be interesting or to be uh, important. So yeah, that's that's Charlemagne, I think, in a very very long nutshell. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, as always, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. No problem. Charlemagne wasn't an easy figure to pin down. He accomplished so much alone, but he was a product of a proud line of great leaders. He had a direct impact on the course of Europe, but also acted as a catalyst for events that would occur hundreds of years after his passing. And his relationship to all of these things is complex. There's a reason that he's not unpacked all that frequently. That being said, when you extract him from this web of great events in Western history, his contradictory nature in some ways served to humanize him a little bit, bring him down to a more relatable level and make him less of a myth. That's a rare and welcome thing for a man who arguably is a founding father of both France and Germany, as well as a huge reason Christianity spread as effectively as it did. The next episode will be up on August 1st. Normally I give you a topic to look forward to at this point, and this might seem like I'm being mysterious or something like that, but I promise we're just still deciding between two really exciting things as of this episode being posted. But whichever one we go with, it's going to be excellent, I promise, and I will see you on the first. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.